We are wrapping up our series on the Gospel of Mark, and we're getting near to the end. Last Sunday, we, we heard about and experienced uh, Jesus giving his last supper, uh, his gift to his disciples and to us, his church, uh, his people. They've concluded that supper, that Passover meal, and they've traveled out of the city of Jerusalem uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so for our message today, we're just going to follow that text together as we follow Jesus uh, to the garden and eventually to the cross. It begins like this. <clears throat> they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And so they traveled outside the city walls of Jerusalem. They walked down the, to the city, down into the, what was called the Kidron Valley, and back up to what was called the Mount of Olives. It looks just like that. This is the view from the top of the Mount of Olives. You might be able to see the little highway running through here at the bottom of the Kidron Valley, right there. It's not a huge mount. They call it the Mount of Olives. We would call it the Hill of Olives. <laughs> but pretty good size for that area and that region. And Jesus is in a garden that would look something, something like this. Olive trees all around. If you go there today, they'll say these are the very same trees. They're not the very same trees, but they're seedlings of the seedlings of the very same trees. And it would look something like that, some olive trees around. And Jesus is there with his disciples. The hillside is packed with pilgrims who have traveled to Passover to celebrate the feast there. But it's quite late at night, and this is an agricultural society. And so most of the people are, you know, they're sleeping. So it's dark, it's quiet, it's mostly peaceful. And from where he's praying, Jesus can see the temple, the place where God is worshipped, and where he'll make his doom. The text continues with these words. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Jesus is calm and composed throughout the trial, throughout his beatings. Jesus is calm and composed when he's attacked by the leaders of the day. He never loses his temper. He's always in control. But not here. This place is different. And some have thought it's because Jesus is anticipating that the torture of the cross and what he's going to have to go through. And perhaps that's true. But he, he's certainly anticipating that while he's on trial and being accused by the leaders and, and, all, and the beatings and all that. Something different's going on here. Something worse. And theologians throughout the years have surmised that it's in this place, it's in this garden, that the Father is giving Jesus a glimpse of what's coming up next. That Jesus is going to be bearing the sin of the world. That Jesus is going to be abandoned by the Father. And the Father's asking, are you ready? William Lane, he wrote this. 
Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open before him, and he staggered. One of the other gospel writers notes that Jesus suffered what's called hematidrosis. It's when your sweat is mixed with blood because you're under such extreme duress and pressure. This is the trial in Gethsemane. Text continues. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. Jesus does not ask that the cross be taken from him. Jesus doesn't ask that the, the punishment and the torture be removed. He doesn't ask for that. He asks for the cup to be removed. For the Old Testament prophets, the cup was often an image of God's judgment and God's wrath upon the sin of the world. And it's this burden that is overwhelming. It's this burden that, that weighs Jesus down. And so Jesus addresses the Father in the very intimate term, Abba. It's translated as Father, as Josh mentioned. More appropriate translation for our day is Dad. Dad, please. If there's any other way, can we do it? But not my will, your will. Imagine you have a child getting ready to go into surgery and the child knows what's coming up ahead and the child knows that the recovery is going to be tough and hard. And imagine the child saying to you, Mom, Dad, please don't let the doctors take me. Don't let them take me. And being a loving parent, you deny the request. And you say to your child, we have to do this because it's going to get bad. And then after it gets bad, it's going to get better. You have to go through this. It's for your health. It's for your healing. We have to do this. And everything in you is breaking. And if you could take the place of the child, you would do it in a heartbeat. But you can't has to be done this way. And the difference here is that Jesus' suffering is not for his sake. It's not for his healing. It's for your sake. And for your healing. Can you imagine the incredible love of the Father to deny his son's request? Can you imagine the incredible love the Son has to the Father to submit himself, even though he doesn't have to, and say those, those hardest words, not my will, your will. Not what I want, but what you want. Can you imagine that love? Can you imagine the love the Son has for you to endure death and hell for you? 
imagine. This is love. This next verse is not love. It says this. Then Jesus returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They didn't know what to say to him. That's great. Uh, sorry. <laughs> they didn't know what to say. We often read this as Jesus' disappointment with the disciples. And it is. It is. We have to remember, as we mentioned at the very beginning of this series in Mark chapter 1, that when we read the Gospel of Mark, we're reading Mark's words, but we're hearing Peter's voice. The early church historians tell us that Mark uh, composed his Gospel by listening to Peter preach when Peter was in Rome. And so when we hear these words, again, it's Mark's words, it's Peter's voice, and it's Peter admitting to everyone, we failed him. His hour of greatest need, and we absolutely failed. It's written for Peter's shame. But it's also written to encourage the church. See, Mark writes this gospel in the 60s AD. And this is when the persecution of the church was amping up. We know that Nero began his persecution of the church in Rome in 64 AD. And Mark writes to this audience. And he's saying, when you are in the crucible of crisis, when life is getting hard, when things are crashing down around you, listen to Jesus and look at Jesus and see what Jesus did. He prayed. And in this crazy hour of Jesus' greatest need, he's concerned for his friends. Jesus does not say to them, watch and pray for me because this is going to be a bad. He doesn't say that. He says, watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation because it's going to get bad for you here pretty soon too. And in this horrible hour for Jesus, he's concerned for them. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the Savior's love for you? checks on his friends because their courage and their character is going to be tested like it's never been tested before. Watch and pray. Text continues. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let's go. Here comes my betrayer. Jesus is, is utterly and completely alone. He stands in that crucible of crisis for you and for them and for me. Again, William Lane, he says this. Jesus' apparent defenselessness and humiliation in the Garden of Gethsemane veiled his true dignity. Only after the resurrection did the significance of the transaction concluded there become clear. Just as rebellion in the Garden of Eden brought death's reign over mankind, submission in the Garden of Gethsemane 
reversed that pattern of rebellion and sets in motion a sequence of events which defeated death itself. Jesus in this garden is, is undoing what happened in the first garden so many years ago when mankind sinned and fell and death and sin and destruction was brought into this world. And Jesus is reversing that rebellion in this place, in this different garden, so that you and I can live. The text here has two really big points. The first point is this. Jesus faced hell for you. He really loves you. That's the first point, the most important point. The second point is this. What do you do? What do you do when you're in that crucible of life? When life gets bad, when life gets hard, when the phone rings at 2 a.m. in the morning and the, the, the thing you hope would never happen actually does. What do you do? Because typically we have two immediate responses. And the first response is avoid. I'm just going to avoid it. I'm going to avoid that person. I'm going to just avoid their emails and their phone. I'm just going to avoid it all because I can't stand it. I hate it. It's disgusting. I'm going to avoid it. That's our first response. Our other response is this. I'm going to attack. I'm going to lawyer up. I'm on the offensive. I'm going to talk to people that know this person and tell them what's really going on. I'm going to recruit people on my side. I'm on the attack. Jesus offers a third response. Pray. Pray. And pray not as an afterthought. Not as a, a quick, quick flare-up at night. Lord Jesus, help. <laughs> Done. Right? Not as an afterthought. Not as a side game. But as the primary activity. Jesus is hours before his betrayal and in torture. And he spends hours praying. Hours. So Jesus invites you, when you're in that time, to pray. But how do you pray? Some great examples in the Psalms. Let me share one of those examples with you. It's in Psalm 13. It's an easy one to remember because when you think of the worst number, you think of the number 13. Psalm 13 is a psalm of crisis and prayer. It's not in the, on the slides here. I'm going to ask you. You guys did such a great job last week. I'm going to do it again. If you have a Bible app, pull that up. If there's a Bible in front of you, check it out. If you're not quite sure how to find Psalm 13, no worries. We'll teach you. So if you have a Bible, if you have a Bible app, you push the app button, and then you push the little, little magnifying glass, it'll have a search feature, and you might even have to type in Psalm, which begins with the letter P. Why do they do that? I don't know. It's P-S-A-L-M, Psalm. If you're using a, a Bible, go to the beginning here, there's a table of contents. 
and you can find Psalm. It's page 532 of this Bible. But a quick way to find Psalms, if you're not sure how to find it, take your Bible and flip to the very middle. Odds are you're going to hit Psalms. Yeah? Flip it right in the middle, you'll find Psalms. And then flip back, Psalm 13. We all have slightly different translations, but that's okay. It's all pretty much the same. Psalm 13 says this. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. It's a psalm of crisis. This is David's psalm. Things are tough, life is hard, and he is praying to the Lord. And the first thing he does is this. Is he prays honestly. He prays honestly. He sugarcoats nothing. He minimizes nothing. And some of you have been taught that you need to minimize stuff. It's, it's bad. It's not that bad. It's, it's okay. It's going to be fine because that's what I've been trained to say. David minimizes nothing. It's bad, God. And I feel horrible. And you know what? I'm mad at you. God's big. He can handle it. And you lay out what's going on. You define reality. This is what's happening. This is what's happening. And it stinks. The second part is this. To pray and trust. The very end of the psalm. David says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. David looks back on his life and he sees how God has seen him through. He looks back on his life and he sees, uh, he doesn't see this, but we can, the cross. Jesus has been faithful to me. Jesus, one way or another, he's been good to me. I have daily bread today. I don't know about tomorrow, but I got daily bread today. And there are so many ways in my life that God has provided in big and small ways. And David acknowledges those ways. And this is important because when we're in crisis, we often skip this part of the prayer. When we're in crisis, we often go, Lord God, this hurts, this is horrible, I need help now, right? And that's good, but it's good to anchor ourselves, to anchor our fear, to anchor our anger, uh, to anchor our um, anxiety in what God has done for you in the past. And then the third part is to pray in hope. 
We pray honestly, pray in trust, and pray hopefully. I pray knowing the promises of Jesus are for you. That you're carrying your cross right now, but the result is going to be an empty tomb because Jesus Christ died and rose for you. And that the end of your story is good. And that those who rest in Jesus are the only ones whose stories end truly this way. And they lived happily ever after. And that's your ending. And God will see through. He will. And many times God takes those horrible moments and works in and through them. know, a time in, in our family's life, years and years and years ago, um, to make a long story short, someone I, I loved and cared very deeply about ended up in prison. And she earned it. And um, we thought that was the worst. And it was bad. But it was in prison where she came to know Jesus as her Lord and Savior. And so something that was horrible and terrible, God did his work through. And God often does it like that. That's through the cross, through the crisis, that Jesus does his best work. It's in the cross and the crisis that Jesus is doing his best work in you. And sometimes those you love. As we walk through those times, carrying, carrying our cross and saying, Lord God, I don't see how this ends well. And Jesus says, the tomb is empty. You're going to be all right. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for not thank you for not running. Thank you for not avoiding or attacking in that garden and simply submitting the Father. Lord Jesus, help us to do the same. Help us to honestly pray, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. And Lord, when we're in that crisis, Lord, help us to pray honestly, laying before you our fear, our anger, our anxiety. Help us to pray trustingly, Lord, remembering all the things you've been faithful to us in the past and all the ways you've provided and sustained and seen us through. And Lord, help us to pray hopefully, looking to you, seeing that the tomb is empty, remembering your promises that you will never leave nor forsake us. Lord Jesus, thank you for your incredible love. Thank you that our lives are in your hands. Thank you for your free gift of grace and acceptance and belonging in your family.
Lord, when we fall, may we fall into your arms that were pierced for us. And when we stand, when we stand in the joy that you bring, because you live and you reign. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Stand in praise of God.